The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, Son, and Spirit, we do lift up to you thanks for grace. Grace that is wide, that that is amazing in what it has accomplished for us. You've been good to us in, in ways that we are unable to enumerate, ways that we don't completely understand. One of your graces that we're mindful of this, this time of year, Lord, as we think about Memorial Day, is we're mindful of the fact that you've given us a country in which we can be free to worship. We thank you for that and thank you for how you've used the sacrifices of so many men and women to make that a reality that we enjoy and so often take for granted. You have, you have been so kind to us. Give that to us. Thank you. And then within that environment, you tell us in Titus that the grace of God appeared and brought salvation to us. You acted to save, to change our eternal destinies. Thank you. You have done that in a way that was beyond our comprehension, beyond our our planning, beyond our wisdom, beyond our power, but you have done it. And that grace appeared to us and brought salvation to all kinds of people, even Americans. Thank you. And then you tell us that this grace of God that appeared and brought salvation also is here to teach us to renounce ungodliness and to walk in in uprightness and in self-control. In other words, to, to be a people holy after you. By grace you are teaching us that too. You work that into us, your saved people. Not by rigor and a mechanism of punishment, but by grace. Thank you, because we don't want to remain locked in our sin. Forgiven, but but struggling hopelessly, unchanged. So thank you for being at work in us to change us, to mold us into what... You mean for us to be in in the fullness of of, of people, of of humanity, created by you specially as image bearers of yours. You mean us to be something and you will not let it go. You're at work in us. Thank you for that. And this morning we're going to turn our attention to one particular area, particularly to the area of marriage. You are committed to conforming us by grace, making us what we should be in marriage. By grace, would you do that this morning? Would you you change us a little bit more? Bring up to our minds, Lord, the things that need to be addressed. The particulars that maybe in certain words or phrases, maybe even words and phrases that aren't the main point, that that would strike people here as they sit in their seats, engage in their own relationships, and many of us engage in marriage, 
as we sit here, would you, would you poke us, would you speak to us and conform us by grace to your image? We need that, Lord. We as individuals, we as your people need that. And that would be of great honor to you to see a body of people made like you, reflecting who you really are. Not, reflect, not, not reflecting our culture with a, with a little bit of Christianese sprinkled on it, but reflecting Christ. Who you are in who we are. Would you bring some of that about today, Lord? So would you take your word and by the power of your spirit, grow us. I pray that you would do that to to the glory of Christ and for the good of your church. Amen. This morning we turn our attention to Deuteronomy chapter 24 as God's Word touches on the touchy subject of marriage and divorce. Which is so good of Him to do. Think about it. It is so good of God to touch on things that are personal. The things that we often don't want to talk about because they're a little too personal, a little too close to us. Maybe they're, they're a little bit of a sore spot or they're uncomfortable or embarrassing or have difficulties and bad memories. It is so good of God to stoop down and touch stuff that really matters to us. Things in our lives where we live He does that, and and marriage and divorce is one of those touchy subjects. In part because so many of us, even many of us here, are familiar with, personally familiar with, divorce. And others of us have been to the edge. And while not actually stepping over into divorce, you can see divorce from where you're standing. This is personal to many of us. So it's a tricky subject. to be clear about it and to be direct about it, but yet to not be arrogant about it or harsh or, or, or uncaring and insensitive. So when I want to say this at the outset. I realize that I'm talking to people who are familiar with divorce. I myself come from a family that is familiar with divorce. My goal this morning, is, as I attempt always to do, is to... Let God's Word speak. So my hope is that what, what I say this morning would, would be true to God's Word, it would be empowered by God's Spirit, and that it would come out and touch you and, and speak and cause something to happen. And I pray even that it would stop divorce, that it would remove that from our experience. And that in its place it would leave marriages of the sort that God intends for His people. So may God the Spirit take the Scriptures this morning and and perhaps repair something in you. And and I say you, I'm in this boat too. The hard thing about preaching something like this is that I'm married. And I have been where you are. 
Maybe not every place you've been, but I've been in those categories. And half of what I'm going to say is incredibly convicting to me. So I say you, I mean us. But may God take the word this morning and repair something in you. Or maybe convict you of something. May He open your eyes and inform you of something. But whatever He does, what He does in the lives of people, He always does for two reasons. Which, really, are one grand reason. He does it for two reasons. First, He is always acting in the life of His people to save, to restore, to repair, to redeem, to renew His sheep. He, the shepherd, does not walk amongst the sheep to slaughter them. He moves with His Word by His Spirit to to renew and restore and redeem. And, second reason, to exalt the marvelous glory of God in the person of Jesus. Always those two things, which really are the same thing. How does He renew and restore and repair and give life to His sheep? He shows them the glory of God in Christ. And this is the end here at the beginning. I'm going to come back to this, but I'm giving the whole thing away. What we need in marriage to be renewed and restored and repaired and uplifted and helped is we need the glory of God in Christ filling your heart. You don't need a better spouse. You need more Jesus. That's what renews and, and, and restores and heals us. So showing us Christ is what He's up to ultimately as He touches touchy subjects like this one. So that's where we're going this morning. Now, let me read the passage. It's a short one, Deuteronomy 24. It's only four verses. Verses 1 to 4 of Deuteronomy 24. There's a little bit of explanation that, that I'll need to give before I make a couple of of overarching points. So this is a short passage, just four verses in Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. It's a short passage. Really, just a, a single law in it. Before we look at it specifically, though, notice the larger context. This comes right after last week, the end of chapter 23. What we saw in chapter 23 were, were five different sets of brief statements that were themselves quite different from each other, but they had a a central theme upon which they all find a a connection. That central theme was something about 
commerce or wealth or business. And what each of them was saying, you'll recall, was that in our wealth, with our stuff, in our business enterprise, we must be a people who live displaying love for God and love for others rather than love for self. That was, that was the point made last week repeatedly. That God is about, in that, in that passage about finances and wealth, in that realm, turning us away from the thinking of, my stuff is for me and my pleasure. The things I have are to enhance me, and turning us to the things I have are for the exalting of God and the love of other people. Which is what the Ten Commandments is all about. Love God, love people. With your stuff, in that case. That's the context. And then we come to, the bit, to today's passage, which we should not see as, oh, and by the way, let me, let me say something about marriage and divorce. It's not disconnected. There's, there's a thread still running through this. We need to keep in mind the, the chapter 23 idea of my things for the love of God and for the love of others, not just for the love of me. We keep that theme in mind and we carry it into now marriage. That's the connection. And it's a little odd for us to think about it like this. I'm going to use some language here that's going to really ruffle our, our modern sensitivities here, but try to put us in the culture for just a second. Think about it like this. To whom is this written? Men. That's, that's the audience of it, men. What's something that the man possesses? We're not accustomed to using this language. What's a thing now in chapter 24 that he has? Some of his stuff. Oh, he's got a wife now. Now, I know that language is insensitive. Think about women as a possession. But if you recall from chapter 22, marriage in this culture is far more a business transaction than a romance love thing. He acquires a wife by paying a bride price to her father. He bought her. That's how it happened. still happens in some places in the world today like that. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying this is what happened. And so now he finds himself with something. How is he supposed to use it? For the love of self or for the love of others and the love of God. That This is the, the mental connection between these passages. I Believe me, I completely get that language is terrible, okay? But it's there. That's the connection. I now find, verse 1, I acquired a wife. What am I supposed to do? That's, that's the connection. And there's a bit of that Chapter 23 theme in this very specific commandment. And it is a very specific case and commandment. Now, if you're reading the King James translation, it doesn't appear this way, but really the whole passage is one great big long if-then clause. Verses 1 to 3 are if, 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 then in verse 4. So we've got one kind of basic point. It's not an exhaustive teaching here. Verse 1, a man marries a wife, and if this wife finds no favor in her husband's eyes, because he has found some indecency in her. Pause there for a minute. He doesn't favor her. 
because he has found some indecency in her. What is that? It's not an incidental question. It was asked in this time, what does it mean? It was asked for thousands of years. It was still being asked in the time of Jesus. And in fact, as we'll see, the group of Pharisees put the question to Jesus himself. What is something indecent? Some indecent thing. What, is, what does that mean? It's a vague word. If we look back up into chapter 23, it occurs up in verse 14. Anything indecent in the camp. There it's referring to things around the bathroom. In other contexts, it refers to nakedness or things that bring shame. Could be a wide range of stuff. What the indecent thing is is not clear. But what it isn't, it is not adultery. Underline that if you're writing down notes. It's not adultery. If he had found adultery in her, chapter 22 is very clear about what course of action should have been taken. Very harsh. So it's not adultery that this first husband or that the second husband finds in her. That's important. Keep that in mind. It's not adultery. But for some reason or another, this man now no longer is pleased with his wife. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and sends her away. Sends her out of his house. He's no longer thinking, you know, she, she doesn't meet my needs anymore. She doesn't satisfy me anymore. I'm not finding my own pleasure in her anymore. Who's this about? I don't like this thing anymore. Goodbye. And he throws her out. If that happens, verse 2, and then if she goes and marries somebody else, as she would almost certainly be forced to do if she wanted to eat in that culture, she's going to be forced to marry somebody else. In verse 3, and if that guy then hates her and divorces her, or if he dies, then, verse 4, here's the conclusion, then her former husband can't marry her again after she's been defiled. Such would be an abomination before the Lord. Don't do that. It will bring sin upon the land. There's the one basic command. First husband can't remarry this woman. And look close to the middle of verse 4. He can't marry her again after she has been defiled. So before husband number one marries her again, she is defiled. Something happened in the second marriage that defiled her. Something happened there. What? Well, again, it's not very clear. It's just stated. And because marrying a defiled person would be an abomination, the first husband can't even marry her, let alone anybody else. That would be an abomination in God's eyes, which is a very strong word. Contaminate the land, bring sin on it, don't do it. That's the text. Basically, one simple commandment. And we're going to look at this passage in the context of Deuteronomy. What it, what it says right here. I'm going to make one first, I'm going to make one point that's kind of a general point using the context and using this passage right here. But we have to also keep in mind that this was addressed by Jesus in the New Testament. So we also need to keep an eye on what does the New Testament have to say about this? What does Jesus teach us? Because when he comments on it, he kind of opens some things up, clears up some things. So I'm going to make kind of two observations here. One that's going to be more closely tied to Deuteronomy itself, and one that's going to pull in Jesus' comments in the New Testament. 
And if I do that, obviously I'm talking primarily to married people this morning. The passage is about marriage and divorce. So if you're single here among us, I want to encourage you, please don't tune this out. This is still God's word to you. There are several ways that it it could apply. One, obviously, depending on where you are in the stage of life, you might end up married someday. You'll likely end up counseling married people, giving them advice, whether they be friends or children. So it would be helpful for you to know God's mind on what it is we're going to talk about. But additionally, when we talk about relationships, towards the end we get to how do we do some of this, this is going to be application for you across the board in all kinds of relationships, not just in marriage. So hang with us here if you're, if you're single. But obviously... The, the main target here are married people. I'm going to make two observations, one from this passage and one that's going to include the New Testament. Let, let's start here with the first observation, the general one that's alluded to in verse 4 and includes the, the context of chapter 23 that comes right before. So here's my first, my first point. God withholds His blessing. God withholds His blessing when His people walk in selfish sin in marriage. God withholds His blessing when His people walk, live, carry themselves in selfish sin, in self-centeredness in marriage. Now this passage is about a particular situation. As we've noted, not all the details are are completely clear yet. We'll get more clarity on that later. But even without total clarity, it's obvious that something's wrong here. Something is going on here that is very wrong, that has left this woman defiled. And knowing a little bit of the culture and then reading the, the language of the passage, we can pick up that it's something that has been done by these men. They're the active parts here. She's the vulnerable one. They took her. They were displeased with her. They sent her away. She was defiled. Not she defiled herself. She was defiled. They've done something wrong. It's not quite clear what. The best we can figure out from the passage itself is probably related to it being an example of these men looking at marriage as if it is for themselves. It fits with the context. fits with this picture of they're, they're kind of passing her around. I don't want her anymore. You take her. Oh, maybe I'll take her back. Oh, I guess I can't do that. It's for them. There's some calculated, deliberate actions being considered here, and they are in danger in their private marriage lives even of bringing sin upon the land. Is that not the conclusion of verse 4? That something's going on in their marriage lives that God would look at and say, in your marriage lives, I regard that as as an abomination, sin brought into the land. Which is a serious phrase. In this book, that that kind of language about um, defilement and abomination and sin in the land, those are serious phrases in this book. Who sins in the land in an abominable way? The Canaanites, who God destroys. 
tells His people repeatedly that if you sin in the land, if you walk the path of disobedience away from Me, you will walk away from My blessing. But if you walk the path of obedience with Me in this land, you will walk and experience My blessing. Those, those things are, are on the line here. And here's the point. In marriage... So understand what I'm doing here. We don't yet know what specifically is going on. But what's clear is that it's going on in marriage and God is concerned about it. So concerned about it that He might lay His hand heavy on the whole people. So you see what I'm doing there? We have to realize a general point here at the very beginning, which perhaps is obvious, but here's the obvious. God cares about what is going on in the privacy of your own home. Behind your closed doors and drawn shutters. Drawn curtains. He's there and concerned about it. And it can affect the larger whole. Your, in God's mind, your private marriage, this is a private marriage, your private marriage can affect our whole community. My private marriage can affect all of us. Now, does this particular case apply to you? I don't don't know. We'll see. We'll, We'll get there. But but hold out on the general for a minute here. Just stop here and, and see. There's a general point here. I'll put it in a question. What does God think of your marriage? How are you walking through marriage? Because He will withhold His blessing from you and, and maybe even from us. If we, His people, walk in selfish sin in our marriages. This is difficult, I think. Because we, fundamentally, we want to live, don't we? Don't we want to live with there being kind of a a line right there between my marriage and the world? Maybe my kids get on the other side because they run around and do stuff and maybe I have to enter in some conversations about some of their behavior. But I don't want you delving into my marriage. I would much prefer that be kept back here, behind the wall. I close the door, you stop talking to me about it. We want to live like that. And God kind of breaks through here. I'm talking about your marriage and it will affect the whole land. Something in your marriage can be an abomination to me. Something that happens in a marriage can be a defilement that I'm against that brings sin on the whole community. So are you walking in marriage in a way that displays the love of God and the love of others or does it display the love of self? I know I'm being vague here. What I'm trying to do is ask you some questions to give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to poke you. So let your mind run off to Ephesians 5. Husbands, how are you supposed to walk in marriage? Loving your wife and sacrificially serving her. Are you? Or is marriage about you? Wife, how are you supposed to walk in marriage? 
following and supporting your husband. Are you? Or is marriage about you? And both of us together, is our marriage about the, the display of the glory of God as, as this wonderful picture of, of Christ the great bridegroom and, and a church the great bride married together, shown in marriage. We've talked about this a bunch of times already. That's what marriage is supposed to show. Does your marriage... Does it? Marriage is such an awesome and weighty relationship. As I already said, there's so much theological imagery riding on it, which is why God's concerned about marriage. But also, He's concerned about it because of what it can form for us. It can be a wonderful refuge amidst a world that's chaotic. A refuge for us, a refuge for children, a refuge for even neighbors as they they come around us and see a home that's in order and at peace. Marriage can make that. Which is why God's concerned about it. And He'll press you on it. He doesn't regard marriage as your private thing. He wants in there. And He's going to have something to say about it. Does not 1 Peter 3 say to husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, dot, 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 so that your prayers won't be hindered? He's saying there's going to be a wall between you and me, husband, if there is a wall between you and her. He wants in. He's going to get in there. So this is just a general kind of big picture thing, and we haven't really delved into what specifically is the passage about. And part of the reason we haven't done that is because it's confusing until Jesus speaks to it. But what is clear is that he withholds his blessing from people who walk in selfish sin in marriage. Brothers and sisters, don't do that. I'm going to give some time at the end. I'm I'm giving you a heads up now. I'm going to give some time at the end of the sermon of a few minutes, three, four, five, I don't know how many, for you to sit and think and pray and jot down a note or talk to your spouse if you need to, to sit and think and pray about what's our marriage like? Because the danger is, I'll, I'll say this, and perhaps God the Spirit is beginning to say, and I'm going to move on to the second point here momentarily, and you're going to forget it. That's, that's the danger, and I want, I want to say I'm going to come back to this and give you some time to quietly write something down, process it just a little bit. We're not going to spend hours. Marriage is important. Marriage, your marriage is important to God. For His glory, for your good. So we'll come back to that. But there's one particular type of selfish sin that's being kind of poked at here. And, and what that is, is is revealed as we turn to the New Testament. So that's what's going to take us to our second point. Uh, let me state it and then work towards it. So here's the, here's the second observation. God means for us to avoid the sin of separation in marriage. By walking in the love of Christ. He means for us to avoid the sin of separation in marriage by walking in the love of Christ. Now, 
There are a couple places we could go in the New Testament and a couple things we could talk about, but I'm going to try to keep our focus here by just going to one place, Matthew 19. So if you have your Bible, which I hope you do, turn, turn to Matthew 19. And in Matthew 19, we have some Pharisees who have come to Jesus to ask him a question. And it says they're there to test him, that they're not um, genuine in this questioning, but they are questioning him on what was a, a couple thousand year old debate. What is that indecent thing in Deuteronomy 24? This was debated in the, in the, uh, the circles of the Pharisees walked in. And there were a couple of camps. One held that indecent thing is just anything whatsoever, whatever you don't like. Another camp was, was more conservative and said, no, it's got to be something really serious. We know it's not adultery, but something really serious, something big. But both of them, they're, they're approaching this, trying to figure out, we want to know what that is because in that case, then, divorce is allowed. Which, unfortunately, is how many people come to the Bible. Tell me when I can get divorced. That's their attitude, and they think they're going to pin Jesus to one camp or the other and either way upset half the people. So they ask him, verse 3, Can we divorce for anything whatsoever? As some of us say. Or does it have to be more conservative, something really serious, as others say? And Jesus' answer is no. Can we divorce for something really insignificant, or does it have to be really significant? No. Have you not read in the beginning? Let's go to Moses, but let's go back before Deuteronomy, guys. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. In the beginning, he made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Haven't you read that? So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Not for insignificant stuff, not for really serious stuff. Don't. Well, hold on a second, they say, verse 7. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Response, he didn't. He didn't command. He allowed, due to your hardness of heart, in other words, due to your sin, in another sense, it, it's fair to call everything Moses writes a command because he's writing the law. But Jesus is making the point that if you walk this through closely, you look, look closely at it, it's not a command. He is making an assumption that sinful people will divorce. He allowed it, but it was not that way in the beginning. God does not mean for that to be. God has joined it together, and He means for them to remain as one flesh, which is why, verse 9, and this is what uh, ends up explaining the defilement in Deuteronomy 24. He's made two into one flesh, which is why I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, which the indecent thing is not, whoever divorces her, Except for sexual, sexual immorality, commits adultery. That's, that's the key. Why was she defiled? Because she was married 
sent away. But the marriage bond, the one flesh marriage bond was not broken. So she was sent away and took up with another man while still married. She'd been defiled. She's become an adulteress. which They did not get back then. It wasn't spelled out back then. It throws everybody for a loop. The following verses show that it throws the disciples for a loop. What Jesus is saying, and follow this, I know there's a couple of steps there to walk through. Let me kind of summarize it. What Jesus is saying is this. Marriage joins people in a bond. That, guys, is far more significant, far deeper, far stronger than you had realized from reading Moses. He makes the two one flesh. And that bond is not actually broken when we write down on a piece of paper, I divorce you and go our separate ways. Still married, in fact. It doesn't break that one flesh bond. What God has joined together, you can't separate. And any attempt to do so just leads to sin in the land. So let me bring this home to us. Far too often we share the perspective of the Pharisees. Coming to a passage like Deuteronomy or, or the Bible in general, looking for something. And I'm, I'm talking about we as in professing Christians. I'm not talking about the world. That there are certain people out there do it, but that's not our concern. I'm talking about this people. We come looking for something. We come looking to, to say, settle this debate. What are the grounds for divorce? Because I want to justify divorce. I want to be free of it, this person, and still be fine with God. And Jesus just says, no. Don't you get what marriage is? The two become one. Now. Let me make a couple of asides, a couple of qualifying statements here. Obviously, right in the text, there's an exception. Except for sexual morality. Right there, obviously. So there is, there, there is a ground for divorce. Jesus states it right there. Within marriage, sexual morality does provide the opportunity for that bond to be broken. It, it's sort of like it breaks a bone. And sometimes when you break a bone, you've got to make a decision. Is this so severely broken that we really we have to amputate? It can't heal. So sexual morality within marriage, as Jesus says, is a ground. There's a second ground later that Paul states relating to Christians being married to non-Christians. I want to be clear about that. There are two cases that provide an opportunity. Not a necessity, an opportunity. And maybe the bone is broken so severely that you have to amputate. But what it does not provide is a permanent out clause. You can't say you had an affair ten years ago. So I'm still thinking about whether or not I want to divorce you. No, like with a bone, you decide we're going to amputate or we're going to set it. Maybe a couple weeks, maybe a couple months. You don't wait ten years to decide. You've got some period in which you could say, oh, some brokenness here. What are we going to do about it? And then do it and move on. 
So there are clearly two grounds for divorce, and I want to be clear about that. And I also need to say, because I know that many of us have been down this path, if you have been divorced for whatever reasons, and you're sitting here thinking, I'm really uncomfortable talking about this, maybe because you realize I got divorced and didn't have any grounds to do it, or just because you got divorced and it was a painful, hard thing. I know, I know that's reality. All that I can say in the brief time I have here is run to Jesus. And one of a couple of things will happen. If you have sin to confess, run to Jesus. Don't resist Him. Run to Him. And you'll find His arms are open wide to forgive you. But if there's no sin involved, if there's just heartache, run to Jesus. And what you'll find is His arms are wide to welcome you. And He will give you hope and comfort. So I know I can't adequately deal with that. With, with all that's involved in divorces that have actually already happened. I just need to say, I realize that's happened. I also need to say that I realize that some of you are in marriages in which divorce, if I say divorce is not an option, you're thinking, but he beats me. What do I do? Call the police. Can I say that clearly? Call the police. Today. Can't divorce him. You stay married to him in prison. Well, praying that God would change his heart, but God gives two grounds for divorce. Physical abuse is not one of them. It is against the law, and it is grounds for arrest and imprisonment. Call the police. Or, or talk to somebody if you need that too, but don't he, let me miscommunicate and say, there's no divorce, there's no out, it's got to take it. No. But all those things aside... I don't want to lose the forest for all those trees because the, the main point here, my focus, the reason that we need to trumpet this to the church is that by and large, professing Christians have taken on a distorted perspective of things. Professing Christians, the church at large says, thinks, I'm going to stick with marriage until I find some indecent thing that gets too hard or too disappointing or too dull or too painful, and then I'm out. And the challenge for us in our fallenness is that Jesus says, No. No. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And for a bunch of us, I think that's going to be very difficult because you are, are so persistently unhappy and deeply hurt. I come from a family in which there has been divorce. I was a kid, but I was a relatively grown-up mature kid, and I saw some stuff that bothered me. And I was not the one in the marriage. I know that's the tip of the iceberg for what some of you have experienced, but, but I want to say I understand that there is hurt and pain in marriage. I, I get that. I, I get that. But may we all, by God's grace, make a decision here that divorce 
is off the table. It's not an option. It's not an option. But we're not through yet because a number of us have never thought it was an option. So if we just think about do not separate as if we're only talking about divorce, and then I guess I'm okay then because I've, I've not thought of that as an option. I haven't done that. I'm done listening. There are many marriages that have never legally sought divorce, but nonetheless are seriously separated. Have settled into an amicable, or perhaps not so amicable, case of husband and wife as roommate scenario. And maybe out there in public everything looks great, but behind closed doors it's a mess. The idea of one flesh living together, displaying love for other and love for God as a reflection of what Christ and the church is and as a, a refuge and a haven for, for all kinds of people all around us, that went out the window eons ago. For many of us, for probably most of us, some degree of that is the real challenge here. Because God is not pleased with our marriages just as long as we don't legally file for divorce. Get that. That should be obvious. God's not pleased with our marriages so long as we don't legally file for divorce. It means for far more than that to be the case. This is where it gets hard to continue to live joined to and not separated from, not drawn away from, or no barrier in between. To, to live with someone in whom I consistently find something indecent and annoying and troubling and painful. And to live consistently loving that person despite that and loving God in this relationship despite that How in the world can you do that? I mean, I feel like I'm doing about the best I can to not go ballistic here, to not bolt, to not file for divorce. I mean, I, I thought that I was doing really well to not do that. And you're telling me that, I, that that's not even enough. It's not. It should be obvious to us that God is not saying, all I want from you in marriage is that you don't legally divorce. Two together, one flesh. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He wants us to avoid the sin of separation, legal divorce, and all kinds of separation before that. That's hard for me because I do really well being all by myself to start with, let alone before we mix in sin in me. One flesh. 
He wants us to avoid the sin of separation marriage. And the only way that we can do that consistently is to walk in the love of Christ. The same thing as last week and the week before and the week before. Because there is no other message from God. God has one message. I mean, the whole book, you could write it on a page. You could write it in a single word, Christ. There is no other message from God. There is no other answer. Whatever the problem, there is no other answer. You learn this in Sunday school with the flannel graph. What's the answer to every question? Jesus. That's true, actually. Crazy as that sounds. We love because He first loved us. So if you want to love people and love God, what do you need? You need God's love to you first. And, and I'm not talking about you need to be saved. I'm assuming, I'm talking to Christians here. I, I know there, there are probably not people who are not Christians here among us. Trust Christ. He's your only hope. But moving beyond that, I'm talking to Christians here and I'm saying, we already have Christ. We already have Christ living in us. But if you're going to love people who are not lovable at the moment and reflect love for God in situations that seem not very kind, why would God do this to me? But if you're going to love Him, then what you first need is a living experience of His love to you. We love because He first loved us. So you need that scene in the cross Stated in the Scriptures, we talked about this last week, John 15, 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Remain in my love. Poured into your heart by the Spirit as He fills you and releases you from you. That's what we need, to be released from ourselves. We're enslaved to this, I've got to use the stuff that I have to love me. He's got to release us from that. Release us from a, a bent in us to look out for self first. And a belief that I must look out for self because if I don't, what will I have? Nothing. I'll be bankrupt and miserable if I don't look out for me and defend me. He's got to release us from that. How does He do that? Not by telling you to stop thinking like that. But by showing you something. Change the analogy. You won't be tempted to grab a hold of this if your hands are already full. So what He does is He fills up your hands and, and causes your arms to overflow. And so the best you can do is dump some of it on other people. Let me close with this. I, I don't, obviously I don't know all, I don't know all your marriages and I don't know all the details of all your marriages. Clearly. And, and I'm sure when you preach something like this, everybody here could come and, and could ask me about something in particular and I would have to nuance it and qualify it and say, yes, okay, don't miss the forest for the trees. I don't know all the details about your marriage and I don't know all the things that you're facing, but I am sure about this. That the thing that you most need in marriage is more 
of a heart that is filled up and satisfied in Christ and is therefore not looking to get it here. Looking to get it here is what produces the frustration and the temptation then. I'm not finding it here. I think I'll move over here to this person. She no longer pleases me. Goodbye. I'll find somebody else. To change that whole scenario, what you need is not a better spouse. To change the whole scenario, I guess you do need a better spouse. You need Christ the bridegroom to woo you and show you His beauty. To fill you. To to convince you. All that you need is in Him. It's true. You can live on Him who is invisible. He will fill your heart. He does love you like the Father loves Him. It's true. You can turn to and cling to and walk with Christ and find your life in Him, which means you don't need to find it in your marriage. Just tremendously liberating. It means you can give life to marriage. So what I want to do is I want to just I want to stop and give you some time to think. Like I said I would earlier. To give you a few minutes, we're going to have some music in the background just for you to just sit and think. If none of this made any sense to you, doodle quietly. But if something made some sense to you, if, if God poked you in some way or another, write a note to yourself. Pray. Repent. Ask for God's grace to, to show you how it is that He fills you. I talk about Him filling you and Him showing Himself to you. There's no magic formula there. The reason I didn't give you three steps to do that is that there isn't a collection of steps to do that. You surrender to Him and say, God, help me. Show me your glory. Fill my heart. Make the words live for me. I know the words. I mean, you read 1 Peter. It was cited again this morning. He has caused us to be born again into a living hope. In this you rejoice. God, help me to understand what you've given me in salvation and to rejoice in that. Take some time to think that through. Then I'll come up and I'll pray for all of us and then we'll sing our closing song. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.